All right, well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, thank you so much for joining us today. My name's Maureen Conway. I'm the Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program here at the Aspen Institute. Woo. I'm getting a little feedback. Uh, delighted to welcome you here to today's event, uh, Getting to Work, Improving Public Transportation for America's Workers, Employers, and Economies. Um, we are thrilled that we have the support of the Charles Stewart Mott Foundation, the Ford Foundation, the Cerdna Foundation, and the Hitachi Foundation for our Working in America series. Um, in the Working in America series, what we do is we look at a range of challenges that working people face in today's economy. Um, and in particular, we are concerned about workers in what I would say is the lower half of the earnings distribution in, in our uh, in the U.S. economy. So uh, median earnings in the, in the U.S. for all workers is about actually $32,000 a year and uh, roughly one in five working adults between the age of uh, 25 and 64 earn a wage that if they were to work full-time year-round is still insufficient to live a lift a family of four above the poverty line. So, so surviving on work today is a challenge and also what we know is that um, estimates of a living wage are vastly different than sort of the poverty line. So for example, uh, researchers at MIT estimate that for a family of four, two adults, two children, um, uh, they'd need to earn $51,904 to cover a basic family budget in the District of Columbia, but the poverty threshold for a family of four in 2014 is $23,850. So, so that's um, less than half of that MIT uh, estimate of a family budget. So, so, and one of the expenses these workers and their families struggle with is transportation. And this has implications not only for the workers themselves, but for their workplaces. Um, how can a worker with a modest income afford to get to work? And so that's some of what we're going to uh, be talking about today and thinking about. Um, I think we have some, some fact sheets around that have some, have some statistics on what are some of the challenges and, and how people get to work. But I wanted to just share a couple of things ab about this. So, so one is, um, in our work in the Economic Opportunities Program, one of the things we do is we work a lot with organizations that try to help people find jobs and find better jobs. And they provide them training and other kinds of services to, to do that. And we heard from a number of people that we sent the announcement of this event to about how this topic comes up for them every day, all the time, with the workers that they work with, that it's such a challenge for working people to to get to work, that there was a great job I wanted to connect somebody to, but they couldn't afford to get there, public transit didn't go there, or it took too long. All of these kinds of challenges are, are really coming up all the time for people who are working with, with low-income workers. And I'll also say from my own experience, having done a variety of um, interviews and focus groups with low-income workers over the years and in the research that we do here, um, there have been just a number of memorable moments of people describing um, the real issues that they face uh, with trying to get to work and trying to get themselves to work, trying to get their kids off to school or someplace on a bus and then get themselves to work. This is, it's, it's really a challenge. Um, for those of you who haven't had the opportunity to talk to low-income workers about their challenges in getting to work, 
uh, we have a short video clip that we want to uh, show now to just kind of frame that and frame that experience to, to ground our conversation today. So this video that we're going to show you, um, it features Ra Goddess, who's a spoken word artist, and, and she kind of represents the challenges that, that people have heard about a lot about low-income workers getting to work. Um, and we're very grateful to the Opportunity Agenda for um, allowing us to, to bring this video to you today. So um, with that, Sean, you want to go ahead and, and show this?
All right. So I think that that kind of demonstrates some of the length of time issues and, and things that, that I was talking about. Um, and now it's my great pleasure to introduce our wonderful panel. And before I do that, I just want to say a couple of announcements. So quickly, um, uh, please do silence your phone. Uh, but if you'd like to tweet, the hashtag is TalkGoodJobs. Um, we will have a Q&A at the end. And um, for those of people who are on live stream, they can tweet questions at the hashtag TalkGoodJobs, or they can email them to mayagoodwin at maya.goodwin at aspenins.org, which is the email that was on the invitation. Um, and now it is my great pleasure to introduce our speakers. Um, I'm not going to say a lot. You do have their bios on your chairs. Uh, but I will just uh, try to sort of put the names to faces so you know who is who is who here because I want to turn it over to them to, to start talking. So uh, nearest to me is Yvonne Hunter, Chair, Friends of Transit, and leader in the employer-driven campaign, Transit Means Business. Came here all the way from Phoenix, so we're glad to have her with us. Next to Yvonne is uh, Beverly Scott, General Manager, Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority, and Administrator of the MassDOT Rail and Transit Administrator. Whew, that was a lot. Sorry. Um, <laughs> so let's see. Next to Beverly is Anita Harrison, Associate Director of Policy Link. Um, and next to Anita is Joan Byron, Director of Policy at the Pratt Center for Community Development. And we're happy to have with us today Emily Badger from the Washington Post to moderate our discussion. So Emily, I will turn it over to you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Maureen. Um, I think that the conversation that we want to have today about transit and transportation is a little bit different from the conversation we often have when we're talking about transportation. Because so often we're preoccupied with the idea of moving people. How many people are we moving? How fast are we moving them? What's the capacity on the red line during rush hour? If we add a couple more lanes to the beltway, how many more cars could we fit on the road? How much faster could we get buses to travel through downtown? And when we spend so much time sort of focusing on moving people, the part of the conversation that we're not thinking a lot about is, well, where are we moving them to? Because really, at the end of the day, the purpose of public transit is not moving people, it's connecting people. And you know, the, the goals that are important here and that really matter at the end of the day are, you know, is, is transit being successful in connecting people to jobs? Is it making it possible for the woman in that video not just to get to her job in a timely way, but also to be able to go to the supermarket on the way home? to be able to um, you know, pick a child up from childcare. I mean, the, when we think about transportation not just as moving people but as connecting people, I think it changes the questions that we ask about it. It changes the way that we define when transportation is successful. And you know, it, it changes sort of the terms of the conversation and also how we talk about whether or not we're willing to invest in public transit. You know, how would the conversation be different if we said in Washington, for instance, you know, well, if we were to invest 10 million more dollars in WMATA, perhaps that would mean that 40,000 workers in Washington could access a job within 30 minutes of their, of their home address. You know, th this is talking about sort of when transit is successful in a different way, and it's putting sort of less focus on kind of circulating people around the city and more focus on what are we connecting them to. And I think, you know, because we're talking about jobs and job access and the role that transportation plays in connecting people to jobs, this is the lens that we want to sort of look at transit through. And, you know, this, this is also a lens that all of the women up here look at transit through in their own jobs. 
uh, coming from some sort of slightly different perspectives, whether that's from running a transit agency or for sort of advocating for better access to transit or uh, for advocating for why businesses should care about transit. Uh, but so I, I wanted to open up the conversation first by uh, asking Joan to, to talk a little bit about you know, this idea that, that workforce development and job access is, is the key part of transit is not always the way we talk about the mission of transit and what the goal of transit is. And so I, I wonder, Joan, if, if you could sort of frame for us a little bit, um, you know, how do we think about what the purpose of transit is in a lot of cities? And are we thinking about what it is in the right way? Um, sure, thank you. I think a lot of transit advocates are scarred from the, their battles of transit versus cars, right? That we have for a long time framed investment in transit and advancement of transit as being about enticing choice riders out of their cars and also conflated that with a lot of other goals like revitalizing central city areas and supporting real estate values both at workplaces and at points of origin. And we at the Pratt Center a few years ago, starting in 2007, to kind of took a different view. We were talking with community-based organizations that we had worked with on affordable housing struggles, on economic development struggles, and we were hearing from them that kind of the gigantic rail mega projects that were sort of the, the marquee justification for you know, Mayor Bloomberg's argument for congestion pricing weren't gonna help them. So we heard a lot from folks in communities about the polycentric nature of, of our city and our region, that employment destinations are no longer just the Manhattan Central Business District, they're all over the place and particularly, they're all over the place for folks in lower wage sectors that we find in, you know, the high wage jobs are concentrated in the Manhattan core. We have finance, media, yada, yada, okay? Low wage jobs like retail, like healthcare, um, manual work, including construction, including transportation and so forth, by their nature, are much more spread across the city and the region. At the same time, we've got low-wage workers being forced out of historically transit-rich neighborhoods, the, you know, the communities surrounding the Manhattan core, so central Brooklyn, Bedford-Stuyvesant, Long Island City, and Queens, being pushed by gentrification out of those areas into neighborhoods like Canarsie, like southeastern Queens, like the northeast Bronx, that, have, that just have much less transit infrastructure because they're at the periphery of that radial system. So we have people who live in areas that are poorly served trying to commute to places that are poorly served and they're, that are not at the, the center of that radial system. So that's what we focused our efforts on. Joan just used this term, which you may or may not be familiar with, which is choice riders, which refers to a very particular kind of transit rider. And I wonder, um, Anita, if you could unpack for us a little bit um, you know, what that term means and in the work that PolicyLink does, exactly which riders it is that we're talking about, trying to advocate and create better access for jobs, and you know, to, to what extent do disparities exist between your experience on transit when you're the woman in that video or when you're someone who lives in DuPont Circle? Thanks, Emily, and thanks to Aspen Institute for holding this really important conversation. And I, I think that um, 
it's, it's critical to really look at these issues and then also think towards solutions that are actually win-win all across the board, right? And so uh, at PolicyLink, we're a national action and research institute that's really dedicated to advancing economic and social equity. And what that looks like in communities is creating places where all people, regardless of race or income, your zip code, um, can participate and prosper. And so that, for us, means access to great education, great schools. That means access to health care, fresh and healthy food. Uh, and it also means having access to affordable housing and um, all the amenities that are not going to uh, break your bank, regardless of what income level you're at. And what facilitates a lot of that is affordable transportation and a range of options. And so um, we're very passionate about trying to make sure that we have a transportation system that is driven by equity. And so um, that's behind a lot of the local and state and national work that we do. And so when it comes to issues around um, uh, riders and kind of the context, it's important to think about um, who are folks who are riding public transportation. And um, across the board, regardless of, of kind of what studies you're looking at from what sources, and in lots of different places, you see that it is low and moderate income individuals, it is people of color, uh, African Americans, Latinos, Asian Americans. Um, and, and this is, and also you see that there are also seniors and young people who are riding transit. And, and it's important to think about what are their needs and to think more about than the idea of how many packed uh, subway cars or uh, buses can you get through a certain corridor and to really think about where are people trying to go. And so when it comes to uh, this issue of choice riders and kind of a focus on choice riders, uh, it's important to think about, um, and it comes from the, the context of thinking about uh, kind of climate issues and um, thinking about regional uh, economic competitiveness, there tends to be a, a focus on choice riders. There's some research coming out of the the Dukakis um, uh, Institute at Northeastern University that really shows uh, your 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 Stephanie. from Stephanie yeah. exactly and um, and it shows that um, an undue focus on choice riders at the expense uh, of those who are the core riders and that tends to be again um, low income individuals people of color. Um, actually destabilizes the transit system mm -hmm. because you have the riders who are there who depend on it on a daily basis um, or even uh, actively enough on a weekly basis. And, and it's important to think about the needs of both, right? And at the end of the day, it's about having service that you can rely on that, um, and as was shown in the video, to make sure that everyone, regardless of, of their income or where they live, can actually use it to get to work um, and uh, other places that are daily needs. I think, too, when we're talking about choice riders, it's important to think about the fact that it's not just that they have a choice of how they're going to get where they could go. You know, maybe they'll take a car there, but it's also that they have a, more choices in where they're going to live. Mm -hmm. You know, if my commute is really long, I have the choice that I could move into another neighborhood, I'll be able to afford to go there, or even that they have more choices in the jobs that they can access. That's and right. part, of, part of the issue for a lot of the low-income workers who we're talking about where they're so dependent on transit is that not only do they not have choices about the transportation that gets them around town, but they don't have choices about which communities in the city they can live in. They don't have a lot of choices about 
where, uh, you know, where they're going to find employment. And some of those other issues around sort of affordable housing uh, and where jobs exist are not things that we can solve in this context, but we can perhaps solve them by creating better transportation options for these people. I think we can solve them a little in this context, but that would, uh, we can talk a little bit more okay, about okay, that. Okay, well, we'll about come that. back to that. Yeah. Let, me, let me pull Beverly in because Beverly um, has, a, has a slightly different perspective in that she's been running transit agencies in several cities for a very long time, uh, currently in Boston. And could, could you tell us a little bit about how you think about sort of serving low-income riders, where they need to get to, um, how the city can, how, how the MBTA plays this role in sort of creating employment opportunities for people who are regular users of the system? Okay, so the first thing I'm gonna do is to ask us to flip the lens and burn up the word choice rider, okay? <laughs> there are no choice riders, okay? There are lifestyle riders and there are lifeline riders, riders and there are choice transportation systems that are competitive but there are not choice riders, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's one of the, and I'm gonna ask us to flip the lens because it's one of those that kind of like goes like a chalkboard across because it kind of is part of what is at the heart of what we have done in the United States too often, which is that we're building systems for somebody else to use as opposed to ourselves. So there are no, we, we will try to offer and should the best system we can regardless of whether we're serving a prince or a pauper. So the reality is what is the quality of the transportation system? So when we, and I often laugh with people, but it's not funny, and I say, look, I said, don't ask me what kind of system is needed. You ask yourself, what would it take for a transportation system, a full network, not just a marquee system, not just a marquee project, for you to use the system and the service, for your neighbors to use the system and the service, and, and, and that is, and, and once we're able to answer and build that system, we will not have to have the conversation about choice. So if anyone wants to walk in, the lady who was just on this video, and what she is having to go through, and thousands and millions of her, because we keep most of the conversation about transportation, unfortunately, at the macro level not at the granular. So it's really about people, communities, and outcomes. And so when I say that at this very high level, the high level is, gee, I love, I want to kiss babies, cut ribbons, big transit project here, rail expansion coming, whatever. But the key is, how does it all knit together? How much time does it take me in order to be able to get from point A to point B? How convenient is it for me to be able to knit my life together? Understanding the fact that when I make those transportation investments, nobody's a fool, been happening forever. I'm making decisions about those communities that are gonna thrive and prosper and those that are not. And it's all that fundamental. So it's in the, so it is in the, it is in the holistic thinking it is in cutting right to the chase in terms of what am I going to, why, if, you, if we relegate people to anybody, to I don't care if you want to hug every tree that's out there. If your choice is a choice that is going to take you an hour and a half, 50, 60, 70 minutes in order to be able to make that, to, to take that travel option, I'm not doing it. And the only person that's going to wind up doing it 
is in large measure going to be the individual lifeline who has no other choice. And so that I would submit to you is at the heart of the issue. It isn't really about mode. The only reason people get so delighted about rail is because there is a particular certainty that simply comes along with the mode. But I got to get there. I got to get there, which means that streetscapes and walking and lighting and clear paths of travel. Let's look at all the stuff that's happening in terms of the bikes and the walking and all of that. For the individual, it's a complete trip. So for the individual who has to do all of those things, if we don't build systems that are all of those things, we got issues. And so it really, I go back to where you started, is that this is really a conversation, most and foremost, about what kind of outcomes do we want. And so if we want to wind up having greenhouse gas emissions, we want to wind up having healthy communities and healthy lifestyles, we want to wind up having jobs creation and economic development, we want to wind up having energy independence, then that comes down to not a conversation about investing in infrastructure or things, but it is investing in people and communities. And so, and that for me is just kind of a bottom line kind of thing. So I will not, so I come back to, it's not about, it's pretty simple. And unfortunately, in too many places, we really don't, have not focused on how you pull it all together. I could go on for ages, I will not. At a granular level, I would simply say this, and I find this, I find pictures are very helpful. We talk about a transit system. Put your transit system, anybody's, up on a map and color code it. And start out with the first thing, here's my system. Lovely, it is. Now, let's talk about that system in terms of what it looks like in the early morning, things start coming away. What it looks like late at night, more stuff comes away. What it looks like on the weekend, if you even had it, okay, on a Saturday, on a Sunday, then you grade it and you say, where is it I got it? Where is it that I have frequency levels that anybody would want to use? I could have a line running up there, but if the line is only going once an hour, but at a macro level of discussion, I will never get to that granular level, which is what it is that makes a difference about what people can and cannot do relative to the system. So that, that's a, that, that's a, you know, that, that's a, um, it's a fuller look, if you will, and some of the stuff that one can do with it, we can have all the background metrics, but you can do some pretty simple things that very, in a very riveting way, bring it right on home in terms of what is actually not only the availability, but the actual quality and usability of what is out there. So Beverly is having this conversation in Boston in a city that has a legacy transit network. And we'll talk in a little bit about sort of the shape of that network and what the shape has to do with this broader conversation about access. But this conversation is a little bit different from what's happening in Phoenix, where Yvonne has been working and advocating. Because uh, Phoenix is an example of a lot of Western and Sunbelt cities where 
things are very new. You know, Phoenix did not inherit a subway system from previous people who decided to build it 100 years ago. And so Phoenix is talking about building a lot of things sort of from scratch and, and is coming into this conversation that Beverly is starting from a very different place. Can you tell us a little bit, Yvonne, about um, you know, how all of these ideas that Beverly just mentioned are, are sort of informing the conversation about building a system almost from scratch there? Thank you, and um, I appreciate coming after Beverly because she definitely defined what we encountered in Phoenix when we first looked at expanding our transit system. And uh, what was key in our effort was the interest from the business community that immediately recognized that the quality of life for the workers, for the citizens, to be that good citizen member of the state required that we have a more robust transportation system. And so it was the effort of the business community that got behind um, uh, several efforts to try to uh, fund transportation in Arizona and the, uh, primarily the, the Phoenix, greater Phoenix area and then um, have the success that we've been able to achieve thus far. Um, the, the initial efforts uh, had very mixed results. As a matter of fact, we failed three times on the ballot. We finally got it through. These were ballot through initiatives to allow the, the community. Yes, excuse me, I'm sorry to interrupt. Okay. But uh, these were ballot initiatives that allowed the greater Phoenix area, Maricopa County, mm -hmm. to fund a, trans a robust transportation system that was multimodal. It was uh, looking at freeway funding, expanding bus service, and also building light rail. We needed the permission of the legislature in order to allow this uh, funding to take place. And only because we were able to show them examples in other western cities, Salt Lake City, Dallas, Texas, that these were successful projects, that's how we were able to persuade our policymakers that this would be a good investment for the state of Arizona. We were able to get um, Proposition 400 through the um, a ballot initiative in 2004. And um, we have uh, already built uh, over 20 miles of light rail line. We now have bus systems that are very robust. Um, up until pro 2004, we did not have Sunday service. When we started Sunday service, the biggest question everybody had was, what were people using to get around on Sundays before? Um, businesses found a more accessible workforce. Uh, the, it was a marketing tool in terms of our tourism industry. It was a very beneficial and, and positive outcome for our particular county. Mm -hmm. And it was all because of the effort, not all because, but because of the um, effort and the enthusiasm of the business community and using those resources to persuade the citizens that this would be a valid investment for the mm -hmm. state. How, how important was the business community in making people feel like higher taxes were okay? <laughs> the business community looked at it in terms of economic development. Mm -hmm. uh, we have seen um, millions of dollars in gross receipts and tax, increased property tax values we have seen um, a very good return on this particular investment. Unfortunately, during the recession, we still didn't get the dollars that we needed, and so Phoenix, right, Phoenix and, and Maricopa County is looking for ways 
to uh, extend or plan for the future in terms of what our transit systems will look like, how will they be funded. We recognize that um, the state and the federal government may not be as available as they used to be. And so again, the effort has to come from the business community saying this is what we need in order to have uh, a future of economic development within the state of Arizona. Mm -hmm. So the transit network that they're building in Phoenix is shaped very differently from the one that they have in Boston. And Boston is similar to Washington, is similar to Chicago, is similar to a lot of sort of older legacy systems where we have this kind of traditional hub and spoke network, which was built in a time when everyone went downtown for their job and people lived, you know, sort of in neighboring collar communities or um, bedroom suburbs. And the whole point of the transit network was to bring people in and out of downtown. This this doesn't work as well today as it did at the time when these systems were built. Beverly, why, why doesn't this work very well today? What's changed between when we built the system and everyone worked downtown and today when you're trying to figure out how to get people to their jobs across town? It's been growth and the change has just taken place in the, just the, the, under, the underpinning profile. I mean, most of these, particularly the older cities, you really had, well, of course, we have the oldest, uh, the oldest subway system, but it was just, it was a very, very, it was, I know, I have to put it out there, you know what I'm saying, we have to have the oldest, okay, but it was just a very different, it was a very different spatial demographic and, and profile, so even for, we still, I mean, for us, look at, I mean, the, the employment and activity centers that we have, Kendall Square, all of that, that's in our, that, that's in Bo the Boston metro area, okay, everybody is not coming coming down that downtown, even though we're, we will still have explosive growth there, but the growth that's taking place as America has grown, and just look at it, we're going to have another 150 million people that are going to be here in the next 20, 25 year period of time. And so all of that, notwithstanding the fact that we're going to have, even in this older city, and you know, more growth downtown, how we in fact wind up looking at that bigger palette. That's why I come back to these networks and systems and figure out how we're going to deal with that bigger palette because look at it this way. Isn't also that bigger palette part of those broader outcomes that we're talking about because we don't really want people having to commute in every sense always back down to the big CBD. We want to wind up being able to encourage things like balance within communities, housing, work, employment, all of which encourage decent, some degree of decentralization, clustering, multinucleation, okay? And so it is, it, is, it is not a simple, plus all the things that used to work, you know, it's like you say, used to work, and say, oh, well, you know what, even in terms of equity conversations, oh, well, you know, all the poor people are basically in these inner city areas, hello, I don't think so, okay? So with all that spatial mismatch, oh, I can still remember when gas used to be 30, that's how old I am, used to be 35 and 40 cent a gallon. Hello, no, so you've got folks that over the last 20 and 25 year period of time, they have moved out to suburbia, exurbia and all that. And in many instances, people, I can see some of the counties and people I've worked in different areas, poor, and they are, Clayton County, these folks were taking a 72-minute bus ride to get into Atlanta. And the, and, the, and, the, and the demographics was just here. When did they move out? They moved out 20, 25 years ago when at that point in time it was, well, come on out. Housing's cheaper, 
da da da. So you're seeing this all over the United States. So all I say is that the the hub and spoke very important as being just as being a one of the 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 uh, uh, characteristics, if you will, of how we have grown in metropolitan da da da. But it is by no if that's the only. Um, if that's the only one that you're thinking in terms of serving, you're going to really wind up missing so many of the communities that are out there, and even in the in the old um, in the older cities, it's just not that simple anymore. It's much more complicated. The trips are much more complicated. The the the, the demographic, the the change in terms of household composition, people are doing a lot more trip chaining. Okay, as women got into the workforce, it is a very very complicated palette. And so the trips are different kinds of trips. People need to do multiple things in trips. It's not just about coming in and out to work. And then I'll say this, now be quiet. It's got to be complete networks. We are always, I'm very interested in the commute trip. Very interested in the commute trip. But did we realize that's only 20% of the trips that are out there being taken? And particularly as our demographic changes, there's a whole 80% that's out there that's the rest of my life. And the rest of that life, going to medical, going to recreation, going to school, getting to the, all of that has to be handled as well. And so once again, I come back to necessity to think and plan and put the stuff on the ground holistically. One, one of the other things that we've seen in cities all over the country, and, and this sort of mirrors what's happened in Boston, is that not only have people been moving farther and farther out and kind of beyond the reach of traditional transit networks, but that jobs are following them out there. So now Absolutely. we've got all of these office parks on I-66 outside of Washington, and now that there are these office parks there, now we have service sector workers who are working in the restaurants that are serving the people who work in those offices and want to eat lunch out there. And now we have this really big problem of kind of how are, not just how are people who live all the way out there getting into downtown Washington, but how are people who may live in Washington getting to jobs out there? Uh, and so I, I want to, New York has the same problem also because just about everywhere has this problem. So the, the Pratt Center has done some research looking at exactly what people's commutes look like. Um, and can, can you tell us a little bit about what you guys have found and sort of translate some of these kind of big picture problems we're talking about into what that looks like on the ground in New York? Um, sure. It's, you know, again, it's a polynucleated city and region and economy. So we profiled um, some neighborhoods that are transit starved, that are relatively isolated from the radial subway system. And then we profiled some workplace destinations, not that work trips are the only thing. They're but certainly the easiest thing to get data about. So, um, and we, you know, there's a hospital cluster in central Brooklyn, three hospitals, 20, about 26,000 people work in that 20 block area. So not only in the hospitals, but all of the firms that do business with the hospitals, all the places where the hospital workers eat lunch, et cetera. It's not a suburban location, it's in central Brooklyn, but it's just far enough off the subway grid that people, most of the workers that go there have to rely on the bus. The, Buses are, you know, kind of what weaves together the, the radial transit system. If rails are the armature, then buses are what connect all those dots. And buses perform miserably in most cities. They perform miserably a lot because they're underfunded. The frequency is not what it needs to be. 
The frequency being poor, unreliability is a huge problem because if, it was, if the bus was scheduled to come every 30 minutes and you knew it was going to be there, that would be one thing. You don't know anything of the kind. It's great that technology is making it easier to know, but what I'd really like is for the bus to be every five minutes and to move quickly. Congestion in the streets is the, big, the biggest contributor to that unreliability, that we've got buses competing for space with cars. And most people have probably seen that graphic where we show how, how much space in the street is taken up getting 50 people to work in single occupancy vehicles versus those same 50 people on a bus. So we've got to, we have to think differently about how we use the assets we have. That, you know, transit ridership is up and transit agencies are being squeezed. You know, that obviously the federal contribution is history. Um, you know, that expansion projects and the debt service for expansion projects is eating up more and more of the revenue stream. So how do we make better use of what we've got? That's our bus systems and the streets that they operate on. And that's political. Can, Anita, can you give us one more sort of piece of context before we talk about solutions to all this and how we're going to pay for it and find political will to do that. And, and that's the sort of financial state of transit agencies. You know, um, Joan just mentioned that in a lot of ways they're sort of being squeezed, their budgets are being cut, and oftentimes what that means is that fare increases are happening and that those are dramatically sort of hitting the people who depend on transit the most. Um, you know, how, how big of a problem is sort of fare increases and affordability issues for low-income riders? Um, are, we seeing, are we seeing this problem get worse, uh, particularly since the recession, since a lot of public agencies have been asked to sort of cut back? Um, what, what's the state of sort of how you afford to take the bus in the first place if you have to? The affordability piece is really is really critical. So um, transportation is the number two expense for uh, all families in America. What's who can guess what's number one? Housing. Housing, right? So it's and in some places. Um, transportation ends up being the number one cost with housing number two and that's often in places where people um, have had to yeah. go out to uh, Clayton County and they're spending uh, more just to get back into uh, downtown Atlanta and so that's a critical issue and even more uh, when you look uh, at income, the Department of Treasury actually did uh, this research and found out that if you are among the uh, bottom 90% income earners in America, you're going to spend twice as much on transportation versus the top 10% of income earners. Certainly the people who can afford the least are paying twice. Um, and so this is a critical issue when it comes to household budgets. And then the other piece that compounds it in terms of public transportation is that uh, just about eight out of 10 uh, transit agencies uh, have either um, cut uh, service or increased fares or are considering doing one or both. And that's been over the past several years. Um, and that's been at a time where many regions have seen um, some economic growth and, and regeneration of more jobs, but people are still uh, who, who would like to take transportation or for whom it's a lifeline um, are not able to access those jobs. So it's a, it's a critical, critical issue. There's and I don't know, Bev may be able to say more about that as well. Yeah, well, one, one other idea I want to add to that is that 
you know, we're asking people not just to pay financially, mm -hmm. but we ask low-income people in particular to pay with their time. Mm -hmm. And this is the trade-off that we're that we ask of low-income people in all kinds of contexts in life. You know, maybe you don't have the money to pay for a car to get there faster, so you will pay for that with your time. Right. And so I'm assuming that what we see also is that the commutes are longer. Yeah. And so um, I was in Seattle uh, a few weeks ago, and uh, um, there's this incredible work that's being done there to think about how do you connect uh, low-income workers to community college options so that they can boost their income, so that they can uh, uh, gain more skills that would allow them to qualify for jobs that might boost their income um, and that community college could be something that they could afford. And some advocates in, in that area have done some research to and, and mapped it out spatially to see if you're in certain parts of Seattle, uh, if you're in the uh, northern parts of Seattle, you can um, easily get to uh, a community college by transit and then certainly by car. If you're in southern parts of Seattle, that's not as much the case. And so one uh, community that's actually predominantly a lower income community, community of color, uh, Rainier Valley, um, in order to get to the closest community college, if you don't have access to a vehicle, it's gonna take you an hour and 15, min 15 minutes one way. And if you do have access to a vehicle, you, you can get there in 15 minutes. So that just kind of illustrates uh, your point uh, there on the West Coast. So, well, let's talk about how to solve this. Uh, we're not gonna pick up the tea in Boston and rearrange it, so a lot of the solutions, I think, that, that will come up may have less to do with subway systems or rail and have to do with alternatives to that. Uh, Joan, New York is trying one of these alternatives bus rapid transit. Can, can you explain to us a little bit exactly how that works, what BRT means, and um, how it sort of fits into the puzzle of solving this? Sure. How many people think that the phrase bus rapid transit must be an oxymoron? Like you can't say bus, but okay. And how many people are familiar with the systems that have been implemented in a few US cities, uh, a lot in Latin America, in Asia? Okay, so simply put, Dedicating lanes to buses, whether by physical protection or by designation, camera enforcement, other means. Um, enabling off-board fare collection, which is key, because the thing that makes buses run slow isn't so much the time they're moving, it's the time they're not moving. And if every rider has to you know, enter the front door next to the driver, find the change or dip the fare card before the next rider can get on, that slows the buses down a lot. Um, Trend, some form of transit signal priority, some way of making the traffic lights and the buses talk to each other because we've all had the experience, we get on the bus, the last person finally finds her metro card and dips it, the bus starts to pull out and the light turns red. So the, it is astonishing the performance improvements that you can get with very little capital investment. Uh, 2008, our then DO, city DOT commissioner, Jeanette Sadi Khan, and our then uh, MTA director uh, Lee Sander got together because MTA runs the buses, DOT runs the streets, they had to talk to each other and their staffs had to talk to each other and basically with duct tape they launched the first quasi select bus service route on Fordham Road in the Bronx which is one of the most difficult trips to make within the city because it's cross town over a very congested corridor that has a lot of topography just to complicate matters further. So they met that route, even with, th there was no capital money 
put into that. That was just all done out of the agency expense budgets. They created an off-board fare collection that didn't require enclosed stations and turnstiles, which we didn't have room for anyway, by taking a MetroCard machine and a Muni meter machine, which is able to take cash, and bolting them together on the street. So there was that kind of ingenuity by agency leadership and staff that made it possible. They got 12% improvements in speed end to end on that route. Mm -hmm. They got a 10% bump in ridership because as the route started to perform better, more people started to take that option. And since that time, we've now got seven select bus service routes in New York City. They're all showing that kind of performance improvements. The next thing is going to be to look for opportunities to go to a higher performing model on the busy arterial streets and the outlying areas. But it's, you can do a lot with a little, and I think that gives tremendous hope for, for other cities. Part of, part of the appeal of BRT to cities is that you don't have to spend millions of dollars buying big fancy new pieces of equipment, but what you do have to do is say, this strip of road, which we've been letting cars use, we want to dedicate it to buses instead. And sometimes that can be as politically fraught as trying to raise more tax revenue in order to fund transportation. So how? How did that conversation go in New York, or, or what does that conversation look like in any of these cities about saying, you know what, let, let's take some of the resources we're currently devoting to other forms of transportation and, and throw them at this problem of making transit more efficient? Yeah, I'll take another minute of airtime for New York. Co grassroots organizations got behind this, and they were able literally to go to the DOT commissioner and say, we've got your back. We know that you're going to get pushback on this, and we're going to be there, and they were. I put in the packet a picture of folks demonstrating out outside the office of their state senator, who was a major opponent of bus rapid transit, of congestion pricing, et cetera. Today we have a sea change. Seven years later, we've got a majority in the city council in in support of bus rapid transit. They're going to pass a resolution requiring the city to pick up the pace. We've got champions for the newest route that the city is putting in. Every council member along that route, all five of them, have signed a letter in support. So the grassroots activism and organizing has made a difference. And the presence of people of color in that movement is new. You know, the, 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 the mainstream transportation movement has been kind of owned by, you know, us white environmental types, and that's changing and that makes a difference. If I could just say, I, I completely agree with Joan that the advocacy piece is really, really key. Uh, Policy Link, we serve as chair of the Transportation Equity Caucus, and we really understanding that there are um, significant amounts of resources that go into communities for transportation, and they fundamentally shape them. They either make transportation a bridge or a barrier to opportunity. And this caucus, which is over 100 organizations strong, national, state, and local, um, are really dedicated towards uh, kind of resetting the rules of the game when it comes to federal transportation policy. And so uh, one example that we're, we're really proud of is how do you think about making sure that the communities who've been left behind, people of color, people with disabilities, uh, low-income people, can actually benefit from transportation investments? And so one thing that we're really proud of is that uh, a number of us as advocates uh, worked um, to, to see uh, some rules changed at the um, U.S. Department of Transportation around new transit capital grants and thinking about how priorities can be set for uh, transit-dependent 
transit populations and setting priorities so that uh, new transit investments actually consider the affordable housing that's around them um, and creating housing at a range uh, of incomes. And so we, we see the advocacy there, uh, both you know, of national organizations, but also folks who are working on, on the ground and thinking about how do you make sure both you're thinking about where the stops are um, that people need uh, along the mm -hmm. transit routes, um, and you're also thinking about who are the people who get to make decisions about this. This gets back to a point that was made earlier. Um, uh, there's, uh, I've read some articles about um, the number of people who are on uh, transit boards at, who actually use transit on a regular basis right. and that it is incredibly low. Um, there is a bright point of light. Um, uh, the, one of the newest commissioners on the Memphis uh, Transit Board is actually a transit rider. And so I'll, I'll be interested to see how that may uh, end up mm -hmm. shifting some of the decisions that are made um, so that in a place like Memphis with such a um, critical issues when it comes to inequality, if transportation can be um, something that really opens up opportunity for folks. I think for, for the purposes of the political conversation, it's also really important to keep reiterating that this isn't a zero-sum game. Right. Investing in transit is not necessarily to the detriment of people who continue to want to drive, because maybe that means taking other cars off the road and making your commute less congested. Mm -hmm. You know, Investing in transit so that people can get to work may benefit you even if you don't ride to transit if you're an employer mm -hmm. who needs people to be able to get to you. Mm -hmm. And um, I think that Phoenix has done a particularly you guys have done a particularly good job in Phoenix of sort of explaining that there's all these other benefits to investing in transit that you may care about even if you're not a transit rider, you know, because you breathe the air or because you're an employer. Exactly. Um, what, are, what are the types of things that you're talking about there that's making this a broader conversation than just something that's about the few people who, who commute every day this way? Uh, air quality was one of uh, the primary reasons why we looked at a more robust transportation system for state of Arizona. Maricopa County primarily was uh, in non-attainment for clean air quality um, under the Clean Air Act. And um, one of the strongest messages we had was that not only would uh, a robust transit system, transportation system, allow for cleaner air, but it would take the, uh, it would provide an opportunity for lower uh, car emissions or, or I should say combustion engine emissions to take place. And um, the other thing that would happen is that um, in terms of overall quality of life for residents, um, we use our transit system in conjunction with uh, some of our game day. We have. Uh, the Phoenix Suns, yes, and we also have the Diamondbacks who are struggling. But um, the bottom line is that if you get a ticket for one of those games, uh, this provides another alternative for getting to the stadium. That's your pass to get on to the, to the transportation, the transit system. Uh, we also are looking at quality of life in terms of time. Um, we Ha added rapid buses as part of our overall transit system. And we found that workers found it a lot more enjoyable to start their work day if they could park their car, get on a rapid bus, for example, to, go to, to get to work and actually get some work done en route, mm -hmm. um, maybe make some phone calls, do what all, the, all the things that you can't do when you're sitting behind the wheel of a car. Mm -hmm. um, so when you're looking at the overall benefits, 
it, it's, it's just remarkable in terms of the, the lifestyle changes that were brought about by our transit mm -hmm. system. Well, I, so I want to throw out one more question before we open things up more broadly to questions that you have or questions that folks on the internet may have, and that's about whether or not there are some sort of technological solutions that also fall under the bucket of not buying big new pieces of equipment. Um, can, can technology help solve this problem either because we're making it easier for people to find out when the bus is coming so they don't have to wait as long for it? Um, you know, what, what are some ways that we might kind of leverage technology that wasn't possible 10, 20 years ago to, to try to make our systems more efficient? If I could just sort of, before we talk about technology to make it more efficient, we also have to recognize a, f a couple of things. First of all, our fare box is not going to pay for trans transit systems. Mm -hmm. And if you're thinking that raising fare box fares is going to take care of uh, maintenance, uh, building new infrastructure, that's a myth that we had to address in Arizona and everybody understands that the fare box isn't going to make it. Mm -hmm. The next question becomes, if you, even if you add the technology, there are still some maintenance issues that may impact whatever technology you want to adopt. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and most funding packages that are available today, either through the federal dollars or even through um, in planning for the future, you have to take maintenance into consideration because that will, it, it doesn't make sense to have a, you know, a nice shiny system, but you can't maintain it. Um, in terms of technology, uh, in, in uh, the greater Phoenix area, we are looking at technology that will interact with smartphones to allow riders to know when the next uh, train or bus is likely to arrive. Uh, this, to, this is to address those issues of waiting for um, a, a bus in 120 degree temperature, not a pleasant thing to do, but doable. Um, we're also looking at, um, we already, as part of our clean air effort, we have uh, many of our streets, streets and street lights are synchronized mm -hmm. so that our transportation can hopefully flow. An idling vehicle, of course, emits more than an operating one. Uh, we're talking about um, looking for ways to um, measure where our riders' needs can be. And, and this can be measured through, um, we have a lot of public forums. We're in a very, what we call sunshine state for a lot of reasons, but primarily because we have a lot of open meeting laws and open meeting law requirements, which include public notice and opportunity to comment and provide input on any transportation plans that are considered, any fare increases that are considered, any changes in transportation routes that might take place. So we use the technology to get the word out regarding what's being proposed in addition to pr actually providing the service. Mm -hmm. Does, does anyone else want to add a thought about sort of a solution or a, a little, yeah? Well, one, um, we just got real-time bus information, which is pretty thrilling. And it doesn't have to be a smartphone. It works with a regular text message that you can send and receive at the bus stop. Um, much better to have actual displays at the bus stop for a lot of reasons, including what populations will have a smartphone and which ones won't. But one of the byproducts of GPS transponders on buses is we can now easily gather data about where people get on the bus, which we couldn't 
before. The MTA did that with a person standing with a clipboard at the bus stop a couple of times a year. That's not an efficient way to, you know, to right. calibrate the service that you need. So I think between open data and the fact that we now can correlate that we know where the bus is and we know how many people swipe to get on is going to yield some benefits down the road. I might add in terms of technology, we also use um, technology in terms of buying fare. Um, we don't have um, on-board fare purchases. They can take place, but it's at a premium. Mm -hmm. To drive that, we encourage people to buy fares at Safeway, Walgreens, other off-site uh, places. Our employers that uh, promote transit ridership also provide fare cards for their employees. And if they're participating in our clean air program, oftentimes these fare cards are made available to employees uh, at a reduced cost or um, are free. Mm -hmm. So there are, there are many ways that we use um, technology to get the word out and also to drive ridership. Mm -hmm. Well, let me, um, we have about 20 minutes left um, before everybody probably needs to get back to work. So if, if you have a question or, or even if you just want to sort of share what your commuting horror story is like, um, you know, please um, just let us know. We have a microphone in the back of the room. Also for, for people who are on the internet watching us, um, that hashtag again is talkgoodjobs. Um, or if you're in the room and you just don't want to ask it out loud and you want to tweet it, talkgoodjobs. Um, Yeah, back here. Sure, thank you. Thank you. Susan, hello. Screen must be on. Um, I'm Ed Watt from the Amalgamated Transit Union. Um, first thing I'd like to say is uh, thank you, Dr. Scott, for hitting that one out of the park. Uh, <laughs> I really appreciate that. Um, since 2010, um, Larry Hanley, the president of the ATU, has been pushing out a campaign to organize riders um, in various cities uh, as much as we possibly due to our um, locals, so thank you for that video. We are very jealous. We wish we had uh, come up with it, but we'd love to borrow it. Um, and uh, we're also in developing some fact sheets, seven or eight fact sheets, on the benefits of um, public transit, the environment, congestion, individual finances, uh, public health. Uh, the list is uh, pretty wide. Equity, of course, data. And, um, very interesting that the millennials ride the bus uh, to be, and safety comes from the millennials drive, uh, riding the bus because if you would like to talk, text, or tweet, ride the bus. <laughs> so, um, also, um, Larry Henley, when he was in New York, along with the TW in 2002, came out and, um, oh, we have sound now, came out and um, endorsed BRT uh, as a way to save money in the contract negotiations there. So, just wanted to share those things. Thank you. This, so this idea of transit riders unions may not be something that everyone is familiar with, but they've been very instrumental in Los Angeles, I think, and Memphis. That, that's part of what we were talking about earlier with sort of what the face of grassroots advocacy, how, that, how that's changing. Yeah, and I'll just say for a bit of context, um, uh, and, and many uh, of those unions have a long history coming out of uh, social and environmental justice organizations. That's where their roots have been, and out of that has grown kind of transit rider unions uh, across uh, the, the nation, and, and, it, and it doesn't have to do with 
older core systems, it's around newer systems as well. Um, but the, the key piece is uh, making sure that, and, and fighting back against cuts that might be happening to service, and really telling a story uh, and putting a, a human face behind uh, what's really happening and how critical it is to think about um, uh, transit riders uh, as being your neighbors, as being your family members, and, and that kind of thing. And so I, 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 I am constantly in awe of the work that tra transit rider unions, the, the work right. that they do, and the partnerships that they create, and that kind of thing. And I really want to take it a, another, Ed, thank you very much. I happen to serve on that board for Americans for Transit, and I think a point was made earlier about uh, who owns this, okay? And so many times that people were carrying the water or trying to carry the water for those who are really lifeline riders without them really being particularly engaged themselves. Mm -hmm. And so part of all of this with, we had the public transit, public good campaign that was very, very, a uh, group that was very, very instrumental in terms of a very major increase in transportation funding that took place in the Commonwealth. And what it is is a coalition of people from users, okay, from all walks of life, okay, but users who are saying, you know, we're going to not just have things happen to us, we're gonna get informed, we're gonna get engaged, and really become the stories, but also getting to really understand more about how do you get to the money and how do you touch the decision making in some real fundamental ways. I think part of the challenge winds up coming, particularly for people who are more voiceless, if you will, and largely voiceless because they got so much stuff to do with their lives, they don't have time to sit around and be philosophical, is how do I make an, how do I make an impact? And a lot of times that's very, very difficult to be able to get through the maze of bureaucracy and all of that. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. the other group that, in addition to Americans for Transit, is the Transit Riders for Public Transportation right. mm -hmm. uh, network that's run out of the LA Bus Riders Union. Right. Right. But you're getting people to get voice, the Federal Transit Administration, USDOT, Anita spoke to it earlier. You have to get the foundational stuff that helps things like having Title VI and environmental justice regulations. And she was referring to the capital investment program. You can't just have everything just be about um, raising heck at a particular time. You've got to wind up making it become part of process mm -hmm. and system. And so to wind up having in the major capital investment program now guidelines for getting that funding that make affordable housing, percentage in terms of EJ communities become actual criteria that help you to say whether you do or don't get the money, okay, mm -hmm. is absolutely critical. So. There's, there's a, you gotta kind of, once again, it's that whole thing of kind of knitting it all together that makes a difference. Um, I think, did we have a question? Yeah, we had a question over here. And um, while the microphone's traveling to her, if, if anyone on the internet also wants to email a question, you can email it to Maya, whose email address is on the program, which you should have. Yeah. Hi, I'm Sarah Campbell with Center for Neighborhood Technology. Um, and we do a lot of work in this space in different ways. Right now we have a, what's called Transit Future, uh, a campaign to build a, a fund for improved transit in Chicago because Chicago also has transit deserts, we call them. Yeah. Um, and so we're looking to fill those. But we're not just looking at traditional transit. And I want to mention, uh, appreciated Ms. Hunter's comments about the business community. Um, in the work that we're doing, not just in Chicago or here where I'm based, 
or uh, in Memphis or New Orleans um, where we're, we have specific efforts going on. What we're finding is that there isn't a lack of jobs. It's a lack of ability to get people to the jobs and to get people who are properly trained to those jobs. So we're working to fill those voids. And there are two tools that we've rolled out and we've started talking to the business community about. And the business community knows how critical it is that they get uh, reliable transportation for their workers because the cost of training and retraining and training and retraining, the cost of not being able to retain reliable workers is very high. Big bottom line issue. So we're talking to them about using the federal tax credit, which I don't think anybody's mentioned, federal transportation tax credit, mm -hmm. which can be used and is used heavily in this region to support WMATA, um, can be used also to form van pools to distant locations. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, this has been around for 30 years, but for a long time, employers, only a few picked it up, federal government's clearly one, that's why it's used so much here. But um, now we're finding that employers on Friday, Shell Oil, Dow Chemical, big hospitals, et cetera, in the south of Louisiana, we're at our uh, meeting to talk about using tax credits, forming associations of employers, and not just expecting the transit agency to do it on their own. Absolutely. And we, the transit operator was there as a sponsor. Absolutely. A lot of these places cannot afford to expand transit right now. In Memphis, which uh, Anita mentioned, uh, the budget for Memphis is less than 10% of the budget for this city, and the populations are equivalent. They have been facing budget cuts and transit cuts consistently for six years now. So the employers there, who last summer could not fill 16,000 jobs, have decided to get serious about linking transit with jobs and about employers paying so that they can get a reliable workforce. So those two tools, the, the federal transit uh, tax uh, benefit and then the formation of employer associations in conjunction with transit, I think are two things that are sort of underused tools. Don't, and they don't require you to have to decide whether you're gonna stand on the side of BRT or you're gonna stand on the side of rail. It's a, it's a neutral choice, and it opens up a lot of ways to fill in those gaps in transit wow. service. So I just want to promote those two things. That's very good. If I could speak to that point, um, when uh, the Phoenix area was looking at building its, its uh, or looking for support from its public policymakers to, to build its um, transit system, we looked at Dallas, Texas, and we took some policymakers to Dallas, Texas. And we learned that in the year, the opening year, that Dallas County and the city of Dallas experienced their new light rail system. They had double digit uh, percentage increases in tax revenues, which was unheard of at the time. And so when communities are looking for ways to fund or to support their, their transit related systems, Oftentimes, you have to look at the economics. What is going to be the long-term return on investment by making this initial interest in, in, um, in supporting a transit system? Mm -hmm. uh, when you're looking at a state like Arizona that's fairly conservative in terms of tax policy, people got it. 
and they were willing to support it because they knew in the long run it would be an economic driver for that community. And it didn't matter where the riders came from, but they could see that the, that the development along the transit routes, those areas where uh, buses can go, where rail could go, absolutely experienced double-digit percentage increases in revenues. So I think I want to punctuate it was an earlier point that you raised, which was about the whole thing about fare box. And so there's not a right or wrong in this, but what was just said was really Phoenix made a conscious decision that it really was not about the fare box. It was about outcomes and the multiplier effect of the transportation investment. So as a result, they have, they, their point is, it's not that they're saying give it away, but their point is that they, they're not concerned about the, whether I have 50% fare box recovery because I know that it's meant this in terms of jobs, economic development, whatever. So I'm gonna suggest that, that once again, foundationally, when we change the metric which has so often been output driven as opposed to outcome driven. And I'm, I'm saying that here because you're Aspen Institute and you all have the ability to help drive that. Then you get a very different frame and we don't have to have the conversations around fare box recovery. We can have them about value capture and the tremendous economic benefit that comes from these developments that take place. And if that's all going to happen, why don't we? And there are examples around the United States where that stuff has really been put into action, where that you're capturing for the transit system and for that transportation network, some of that actual value that is demonstrably been generated as a function of that, that winds up coming back in to wind up supporting as an investment into the system changes fundamentally the discussion. Mm -hmm. And I just want to clarify, just mm -hmm. we do care about fare boxes. Yeah. But it isn't overwhelming. Right. It is not right. the sole focus Absolutely. for determining whether or not there will be a transportation system. Right. I want to say something about Sarah's other point. I'm really intrigued by this uh, notion of thinking about how um, the the um, commuting for the tax credit for commuting um, can actually be actually can be applied and how it is applied. And um, if anyone in the room or anyone who's listening on live stream has uh, uh, thoughts or has seen any reports about is it being used for folks across a range of incomes? Because I am curious to hear whether or not that's actually making a difference in terms of kind of wealth building and, and asset, asset building and that kind of thing. Because I think it, it ought to be taken advantage of uh, potentially even more than it is. And um, if there's a broader research effort, maybe that's something Aspen Institute might be interested uh, in bringing forth as well. But it's a very intriguing idea. There are a number of applications with service workers. For example, Hotel Association in Charlotte, North Carolina, manages the program for all the hotels. So because they also believe that uh, reliable workforce, retention of workers is very important. And, and so the Hotel Association formed the, um, the, what we call TMAs, Transportation right, Management right. Associations. That's exciting, yeah. A lot of hospitals, a lot right. of the service workers and the shift workers in hospitals have been organized also. 
That's exciting. We should definitely figure out how to bring that to scale, and maybe there's kind of a coupling even with living wage campaigns that, that are um, happening around the U.S. And I think your point is really the, the bigger point in terms of systems is that it's really about mobility management, okay, as opposed to a monopolistic, it's got to be the transit system or the transit agency. It is in the knitting together of all of it that makes the difference. Let me fit in one last question. Do we have a question from not in the room? Oh, okay. Um, I think, was there, yeah, right back here. Hi, uh, Jeff Pavlak from the AFL-CIO's Transportation Trades Department. I had a real quick question. Um, so in the beginning of the video, you noticed that the woman talked about the cuts that basically she faces and she has to reroute her means of getting around town. And I wanted to sort of ask the panel in particular, Bev Scott, about the way we distribute federal dollars for transportation. It's primarily for capital needs, which are obviously very important at the especially the big city systems. There's no money at the operating level, and so many of these systems are at times flush or semi-flush with capital money, but not with operating money. So you could speak to the need to maybe provide flexibility or at least how we go about distributing that money, that would be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, I, I would just, once again, we're Aspen, so let's lift it is that the fact that we are completely broke on the high, you know, the whole transportation funding piece at the federal level is broken, really gives us an opportunity to honestly, and a need to have to transform it, okay? So I will say this, yes, on the transit side of the house, there is no question but that we are almost, we are just starving because there is literally nothing in operations just about. When I started in this industry 40 years ago, it was not unusual for public transit systems to have 75 to 80% that really was going in terms of operating. So the whole foundation, the notion that I can have money to build something and I could buy a bus, but then I don't or a train and I have no money to wind up being able to operate it back home is absolutely the oxymoron that we have created for ourselves in the existing model. And so this one is absolutely broken and we've got to wind up doing so. There's got to be change. And so once again, we won't get the change by trying to ride the same horses that we've got. We've got to really wind up systemically making for more flexibility actually that there, it is okay to wind up having operations wind up being able to be part of that funding mix, absolutely. Yeah. And right now, just to, to add a note of pessimism, um, we're really, you know, the, the, the money is really flowing in the opposite direction, that, that especially the legacy systems that not only need to expand, but that need to address the absolutely. years and years and years of deferred maintenance when we basically bled money out of the systems by not taking care of them, how are they handling that? They're taking on debt. And that debt, as a lot of people in this room well know, is squeezing the operating side because the, the revenue stream that pays that debt back is the fare box. So we've got this, you know, the agencies are in a trap where money is diverted from operations and maintenance to service debt. The share of, you know, of every year's cash flow that goes to debt is growing. So yeah, it's broken. <laughs> So the timing of that was slightly unfortunate, and then now we're going to end on a pessimistic note. Um, but but I, I really appreciate you know, everybody coming and being a part of this conversation. Um, and I think you know, a couple things that we want to take away from it are you know, both sort of the centrality of making sure that people who are actually impacted by what we're talking about are 
in the conversation, but also that this conversation includes lots of people who haven't been a part of it in the past. And um, my, my own personal notice that I'm going to stop using the term choice writers. <laughs> well, I really want to thank our panelists and Emily for this fabulous conversation. I know I learned a lot. I, I hope you all uh, enjoyed it as well. So thank you all so much. <laughs>